Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley. Now, it is a budget day, but of course, because it's Wednesday, we're going to bring you PMQs unpacked. Patrick Guy and I will pause the action live from the House of Commons to explain what went on between Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer. But before that, it's today's columnist panel. Uh, it must be uh, Crampon, but actually there's no Alice Thompson. So we've got Robert Crampton and Polly McKenzie. Let's talk, first of all, about... But there's sort of quite a lot. I suppose there's sort of two stories that sort of come together a bit for me this morning. There's the obviously the budget, which is Sunak promising to spend lots of money, billions and millions of pounds of money all over the shop. Uh, and then next to it, we've got a story of the government having spent billions and billions of pounds, mm. 37 billion pounds on test and trace, eye-watering sums, private consultants. And it hasn't really worked uh, on, the, on its one aim, which is to reduce um, uh, the spread of COVID. And, uh, you know, the Public Accounts Committee is saying it's failed in its one objective. Um, and I suppose this sort of really sums up the big challenge uh, today, uh, doesn't it, Polly? That the it's one thing announcing all the money; it's quite another it then delivering on the thing it's supposed to do. Yeah, and the, the problem is that delivering stuff is just kind of boring and non-sexy, and doesn't really play for a politics audience. And who do we recruit into the uh, jobs as ministers? People who are good at politics not people who are good at delivery. And sure, they then are able to appoint people uh, within the civil service to run things. And uh, the civil service then lean on private sector consultants, which means we don't even get the advantage of, uh, of, of, of you know, civil service pay levels running things. We, we end up paying for things. And, um, and in the end, the accountability falls on the minister, who most of them never run anything, certainly not anything complicated. I think we talked about this a bit before, Robert, but this this whole idea of, you know, Boris Johnson's a fan of the announcing the the, 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 yeah. the shiny plans, but deliver, delivering is, is a different matter altogether. Yeah, it's a funny way to run a country where you put you put a, a humorous newspaper columnist uh, in charge. Uh, I mean, uh, Boris Johnson's probably column's probably funnier than mine, but I wouldn't, uh, I don't think I'd be much good at being... Prime Minister. Uh, yeah, I mean, Polly's right. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting that uh, Emily Lawson, one of the heroes of the heroines of the uh, vaccine programme, who was supposed to be running uh, this new delivery unit in number 10, is now having to be redeployed because the booster 
uh, rollout has gone not very well so far. Now that is a bit of an indictment where you're having to where you've got you found one person who's obviously super competent, <laughs> but you're having to kind of move her around uh, to, to, to plug gaps. Uh, yeah, I mean, I remember to drop a name. I interviewed interviewing Tony Blair years ago, and he said one of the, his big lesson after I think he'd been seven or eight years in government by then was that it was really hard to get anything done. You pulled a lever or you pressed a button and you sat back and six months later, nothing had happened. Uh, and I think that is what makes me anxious when you see, oh, well, Rishi Sunak suddenly got another 20 or 30 billion to spend because of higher growth. Those, those sort of spending commitments, as, as Michael Barber says in, the, in, the, in Red Box this morning, uh, announced in haste, tend to rebound on you. You know, we can all think of lots of examples where money's been, the, the cash has been splashed and, and, and things have either not happened or have gone badly wrong. And I suppose the, the other problem, Polly, is that a lot of the challenges that they're throwing money at are not easily sorted. It's not like, well, let's make, we could, let's make train tickets cheaper. You could just do that tonight. Uh, solving a massive backlog of hospital uh, appointments and operations Actually, the the way to really do that is with more staff, and that takes years and years to mm. recruit and train doctors and nurses, or similarly, you know, teachers. In fact, we could just see Rishi Sunak coming out of the uh, out of number eleven with his uh, team. He's got his little red box with him, and all the team yeah. lined up. Although not all of them, uh, Simon Clark, who's the new uh, Chief Secretary of the Treasury in the reshuffle, he's tweeted this morning saying, really looking forward to explaining the budget and spending review alongside the Chancellor. I won't be outside for the photos in Downing Street as I live with agoraphobia, which prevents oh. me from being comfortable in some open spaces. But I'll be busy in Parliament and out in the country. So, um, uh, but there's still one, two, three, four, five, six, seven others standing next to, uh, no, eight others standing next to Rishi Sunak. So plenty of them. He is, he is quite diddy, though, uh, has to be said. He does look, <laughs> and never mind sliders. I think he needs some Cuban heels standing outside. Has he, got, has he, got, he hasn't got his sliders on. He hasn't got his sliders on. He's waving right. his, waving his... Uh, he should be wearing a, a denim vest, don't you think? Uh, like the presiding officer in the Senate. <laughs> I think Sunak would look good in a denim vest. He would definitely think he could pull it off. Actually, one of the most remarkable things with that, with the Brown Blair documentary is the footage of, of Tony Blair in some very 80s sort of... Oh, stonewashed Stonewashed jeans. tight jeans. Oh, oh. There's a mental image for you. That should be taxed. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. should, that should really be taxed. Tax so, on stones. Um, Polly, um, what, from your perspective, uh, from Demos, your thick type perspective, and you know, you know, you've previously worked in Number 10 during the coalition years, and you know, you know how complicated it is to get a budget to all add up. Um, what does a successful budget look like for Rishi Sunak, do you think? Well, for him, it's, you know, being able to announce some stuff, get some good headlines and not for that to unravel over the week, uh, the week that comes. Uh, you know, it, there were examples in the Brown's uh, budget with the, you know, the, abolishing the 10p tax rate sounded like a great idea. And then everybody realised that actually he was doubling taxes on the lowest paid. Uh, George Osborne had a budget which descended into what was called the omni shambles because things like the tycoon tax and the pasty tax and the granny tax which, of course, was not how he described them, emerged as people sort of picked at the numbers and understood things. And and in the end, half of them got abandoned. So that that's what Rishi Sunak is aiming for. But of course, that's just a reminder, isn't it, of the the short term uh, platform on which politics is really decided. 
you would hope that a chancellor would really set his store by do we increase productivity in the economy over the next five years or you know do we get back some of the growth that we have lost and deal with our you know supply chain problems but you know politics is uh, is just doesn't work like that unfortunately um, and I, I suppose, do, do you now look back on your time in government and think that, did you try to make these arguments when you were in government or is it just impossible to do that, that ultimately what's on the news tonight is more important than what might happen in five or ten years' time? Well, so, you know, I was on the policy geeky side absolutely making those arguments, but one could argue that Liberal Democrats uh, paid the price for worrying about putting all of their time, energy and eggs into the let's do the right thing for the country basket. And uh, it turns out people would rather have politicians who look good in the short term than <laughs> ones who can tell you about, you know, a 10 year attempt to rebalance through a regional growth fund or investing in social mobility over a generation through the pupil premium. And I guess the best example of that is, uh, is, is uh, measures to reduce carbon emissions, which, which pan out over 10, 15, 20 years. And there could be a very heavy price paid for the politicians to start getting serious about that. Mm, absolutely. Um, and do you think as voters, Robert, we need to sort of uh, grow up a bit? Is it is it actually the pro- you know, is, it, is it our fault? Is it actually, you know, Rishi, we do want to know what Rishi Sunak is going to do right now. And actually, long, long term, we're, we... we uh, aren't that interested in something that might happen. You know, 2030, 2050, that all mm. seems like a long way off, doesn't it? A little bit, but then it's, uh, I mean, the the East Germans used to uh, blame the electorate, didn't they, when things went wrong? You can't, <laughs> there's, there's no mileage in doing that. I mean, yes, of course. I mean, people, anybody who, who is uh, involved in any sort of political reporting, as I, I mean, I'm not fundamentally, but I've done a, I do a little bit, soon discovers that the, the, the general public are not that interested, uh, and they can be, not always, but they can be, uh, fantastically ignorant about uh, political issues, but that is that is there's no point complaining about that. That's just I mean that's just the way it is. Uh, well, I wonder in a weird way, would it not be better if then the, the politicians used that as cover to do a whole load of stuff, but instead of trying to pander to a load of people who actually aren't paying a lot of attention, really cracking on with some big you know big thinking might make a. Well, they start to pay attention when their bills go up. This yeah. is what's going to happen with, the, with say, I don't know, heat pump, re- replacing gas boilers with heat pumps. Uh, that's going to... People start paying attention then. Well, let's talk... Uh, talk as you're touching on um, uh, climate change stuff, let's talk about COP26 <laughs> and the latest news that the Queen's not going. Um, uh, she's pulled out of... Uh, Travelling to Scotland because uh, she's still following advice to rest. <laughs> So she's got to send a video. I mean, actually, sending a video is probably the greenest thing she could do anyway. Rather yeah, than the full, the full palaver of her, of her going up. Do you think, and, and it's been sort of, somebody I was um, tweeting about this this morning, saying that there's a risk that the government's sort of slightly viewing this as being like a, a new Olympics uh, and not a yeah. serious summit where, you know, important client. Yeah, because they've got, to, have you seen the mascot, the, the seal? I can't remember what the seal's called. But it's no, a, I haven't. There's, a, there's someone dressed up as a seal, and it's a sort of COP26 mascot. And there, yeah, there was talk of having Coldplay playing there and all of that. They're, actually, this seems yeah. to be being treated more like a, a sport, you know, a great jamboree, rather than a sort of actually a slightly dull um, series of technical climate change talks. Sorry, are you asking, are you asking me? Yeah, yeah, uh, well, either of you, yeah. 
yeah, I mean that that is a da- <clears throat> that is a danger. I mean, I suppose that's a danger with all these events, and that is why I suppose it it kind of does matter on a on a kind of showbiz level that the, that the that the Queen isn't going to make it, especially now that. Uh, uh, the Chinese and Russian leaders aren't going, to, aren't going either. It, it, it risks it being devalued. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I always assume with summits that the, the boring stuff gets done elsewhere anyway. So we, one would assume that that, was, that is happening anyway. Uh, but as a symbolic, I mean, I, you can't obviously you can't blame the Queen. She's 95 and she's tired, and apparently she stays up too late watching Line of Duty like the rest of us. But. Uh, <laughs> uh, it's yeah, it's not it's 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 not great. I mean, I suppose one of the reasons it would there was that there's a certain there would have been a certain glamour attached to holding the summit in the UK would have been the presence of the royal family. So that is a that is a drawback. But yeah, that's, I think overall it shouldn't matter too much in terms of the detail. What do you think, um, Polly? Because actually, you know, the, the the Queen turning up to the G7 in July back in the summer actually did add a bit of you know. Razzle medazzle. The, the the world leaders seem to seem to like seeing her more than possibly seeing Boris Johnson. Uh, Bonnie, Bonnie is the, what the seal is called, by the way. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, so I don't. I I I certainly don't think even the seal or Coldplay, any of that. The showbiz stuff doesn't doesn't matter. Um, what you're trying to do is create pressure and visibility mm-hmm. that pushes leaders to just shift the balance a little bit in terms of what they will sign up to. I think, you know, in the end, it really does. The context of this doesn't help. We're not helping ourselves by having this giant row about sewage. We're not helping ourselves by having like dissed the very idea of sticking to international agreements once you've signed them because of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Whilst we're trying to summon world leaders to sign up to politically difficult binding agreements. So as a result, I mean, Robert's right. Like most of the work does go on in advance, trying to get countries to put forward you know, basically detailed plans of what what they'll agree to if everyone else will agree to similar things as well. And 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 that's where it's going a bit wrong is just the the complexity of that diplomacy isn't isn't really going very well, partly because of a lack of trust, partly because, you know, there's a global energy crisis. We made it worse, worse for ourselves in the UK, but it is happening everywhere. Supply chain and energy crisis pressure, which means that no one really wants to be talking domestically about um, about putting up the cost of, of energy generation, even if it is to stave off a climate catastrophe that would cost us far much more money in the long term. So the question is really, what can you salvage and how do you make sure that we don't waste this decade? Because people have talked about this as our kind of last best chance. So if it's going to be fluffed a bit, what's the second last second best chance? Polly McKenzie there from the Think Tank Demos and, of course, Times Economist. Robert Crumpton, you read t- uh, Robert in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next is PMQ's Unpacked. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. PNQ's Unpacked on Times Radio. Unpacking the politics and cutting through the crossfire. Order, order. I call Matt Chorley and Patrick Maguire. Yeah. I'll tell you what, Patrick, your jingle gets more and more elaborate. Uh, you've now got cheering and, and clapping. Clapping, which isn't really even allowed in the House of Commons. I know. Lindsay Hall will not take kindly to that <laughs> if, he's, if he's listening, which I very much hope he isn't. Uh, yeah, no, he should be in the Commons uh, chamber. Uh, so, Patrick McGuire's here, Times Red Box editor. If, you have, if you've only recently joined us here on Times Radio, welcome aboard. Welcome to the Fun Factory. Uh, what we do uh, with PMQs is rather than just putting it on and letting you work out what's going on, we pause the action live as we go along. Uh, to try and explain what's happening between Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson. Interestingly, oh, so two bits of uh, breaking news here. I was about to point out that lots of Tory MPs are wearing face masks on the front bench. Uh, Rishi Sunak uh, is wearing a face mask behind Boris Johnson, as is, I think, Dominic Raab. Uh, But Sky News are reporting that Keir Starmer has tested positive for COVID. I was just about to say it would make sense for Keir Starmer to ask about COVID this week because, you know, this is a watershed budget for Rishi Sunak. He wants to... He's all about optimism and talking about this being a transition from the pandemic age to a a sort of more normal period of government activity. Um, And in, you know, an act of heavy-handed symbolism, the news gods have intervened and Keir Starmer can't ask about COVID because... Presumably, he's now back in Kentish Town, self, self-isolated. Well, we are uh, very much by the seat of our pants because we don't actually know. Does that mean that Keir Starmer is going to answer, ask the questions via Zoom, or is someone else being drafted in? Uh, you can see on the, on the front bench, Dominic Raab is wearing a mask. Sitting next to him, uh, Jacob Rees-Mogg isn't, uh, because of course they've got convivial fraternal spirit. Uh, which uh, Ed Miliband is asking the question. Wowzers! Ed Miliband is going to stand in for Keir Starmer at PMQ, so not even Angela Rayner. I am uh, the deputy leader of the Labour Party. Um, there will be a lot of shadow cabinet ministers who aren't Ed Miliband's biggest fans, uh, uh, unamused by that. Um, and there has been lots of concern from the shadow cabinet um, that he was getting a bit of, uh, a bit above his station. Ed Pre- Miliband. Presumably, Ed Miliband is now about to ask him why he won't nationalise. The energy providers. He looks to be having a good time anyway. It, this is a very retro, old-school PMQ. So suddenly this is much more interesting than it would be normally because pre-budget uh, PMQs is normally a slight waste of time. Right, we go live to the House of Commons uh, for PMQs Unpacked. First question from Ed Miliband. So I'm calling Ed Miliband to ask the question. I'll be at the opposite. Ed Miliband. Th- thank you, uh... Just, just like the old days. Just to say, I presume you all want to get onto the budget because all you're doing is delaying it. Ed Miliband. 
He hasn't actually managed to say anything yet. I assure both sides of the house it's one time only that I'm back. Mr Speaker, we all need the vital COP26 summit in Glasgow to deliver next week because failing to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees will have devastating consequences for our planet and that is shared across this house. Does the Prime Minister agree that to keep that goal of 1.5 degrees alive, we need to roughly halve global emissions in this decisive decade? Well, I, I welcome the right honourable gentleman to, uh, to his place. And, and indeed, I think, I, I think the whole House will extend uh, our sympathies to the, to the Leader of the Opposition. I hope he uh, returns, uh, returns soon. Uh, it is, of course, uh, correct, Mr Speaker, that uh, COP26 is both unbelievably important for our planet, uh, but also very difficult. And it's in the balance, uh, Mr. Speaker. And uh, he's right in what he says about the need to, to keep 1.5 degrees alive. And that will be, and it does depend on what happens this decade, it depends on the commitments uh, that are made. All I will say, Mr. Speaker, is that already very substantial commitments under the UK uh, presidency, presidency designate of COP have been achieved. And we've moved from only 30% of the global economy uh, committed to a net zero by the middle of the century to now 80%. And uh, every day as I talk to international leaders, we hear further commitments to make those solid commitments that the world will need. Whether it is enough, Mr Speaker, I'm afraid it is too early to say. OK, let's just pause it uh, there. Ed Miliband very much going on um, home turf, if you like, former Energy and Climate Change Secretary, obviously, in the uh, last Labour government. Yeah, it's not, it's not his first ra rodeo. He was in uh, Copenhagen when they got a climate deal over the line in, uh, in 2009, I think it was. Um, interesting to hear Boris Johnson continuing to temper expectations about just what we can expect in Glasgow uh, over the next few weeks. Obviously, we've had the Queen this morning uh, pulling out, which may have more to do with her health than the chances of uh, the chances of an agreement. But you know, it's unusual for a prime minister to be so downbeat about a summit. Do you think it's a, a little great bit of expectation trying. management? I, I think so. I don't think anyone in government I speak to thinks it's going to be a failure. I think they they are they are very concerned. To, to, they want to roll the pitch for the chance of uh, an agreement that falls short of. A hugely ambitious sort of thing. Because two two notable things this morning is Australia, you know, driven by basically they felt that fight the culture war over climate change. Uh, it, uh, the whole issue is forced out several prime ministers. They've just adopted a target of net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Um, it followed quite a lot of wrangling between Scott Morrison, who's the prime minister, and uh, Barnaby Joyce, who's his deputy, leads the National Party, mm. which is always opposed to all this. So that's quite a big shift. Australia's been a sort of big problem with this. The other thing that I noticed today was that the. Um, uh, there was a report out from the UN that said that the net zero targets announced by 50 countries so far offer hope that the worst impacts of climate change could still be avoided. So it still feels like it's it's possible. Yes, yes, exactly. Hope, keeping hope alive is probably the, the best thing that we can... And, and while the, the theatre, you know, the Queen won't be there, uh, Xi Jinping won't be there, Vladimir Putin won't be there, while the theatre might not be up to much, I think, as you say, a lot of the groundwork is happening already. OK, let's go back then. Here's question number two. Ed Miliband standing in for Keir Starmer. Mr Speaker, I applaud the efforts of the UK presidency under the president-designate uh, Sharma, but, but I do want to direct the Prime Minister's attention to the issue of this decade. I'll come to net zero targets for the middle of the century in a moment, but yesterday a very important report came out from the United Nations, which he will know, the UNEP emissions gap uh, report. And on the eve of COP, 
It warned that far from halving global emissions this decade, we're only on course to reduce them by about 7.5%. Does the Prime Minister acknowledge, because this is crucial for what happens at Glasgow and after Glasgow, does the Prime Minister acknowledge how far away we are from the action required in this 10-year period? Prime Minister. Mr Speaker, indeed I do, but I think what the House should also recognise is how far we have moved just in the space of a, a few years since the, since the Paris Copper Summit of 2015, where, uh, if, as I'm sure the, the Right Honourable Gentleman uh, will remember, the world agreed to, to net zero by 2100, by the end uh, of the century, and, and, agreed, and agreed to try to restrain global warming by four degrees. We're now trying to keep alive the prospect of restricting that growth to 1.5 degrees. Every day, Mr Speaker, countries are coming through with solid commitments on uh, stopping the output of, of coal-fired power stations, uh, reducing their use on internal combustion engines, planting millions of trees and investing uh, hundreds of billions of pounds in the developing world. That is, uh, those are solid commitments. Whether they're going to be enough, Mr Speaker, I'm afraid it is still uh, I'm too early to say. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's pause it there. Uh, it's interesting, Boris Johnson sort of agreed with Ed Miliband's uh, assessment that um, what happens over the next 10 years is going to be crucial. It's not yet clear that enough will happen over the next 10 years. Yeah, and it's, it's a strange one, isn't it? Because, obviously, uh, us Westminster journalists will look at COP primarily, almost, as a test of Boris Johnson's, you know, diplomatic acumen, his ability to get people around a table and agree a deal. But, really... I think it, it, what he was saying there was absolutely fair, that he he is not really the author of what's going to happen over the next 10 years, right? It's all about whether, uh, you know, the likes of your Russias, your Chinas, your Americas make those decisions. And what he can do or say is limited. So it's, it's quite interesting. It's the one subject he's not particularly boosterish on, climate. Yeah, and actually, and, and also, you know, there's always that tension as well with his own backbenchers, some of whom are slightly yes, less, exactly. less persuaded. Of and this. he doesn't, yeah, exactly. He doesn't want to sound too gung ho about net zero because it's the the area of acute weakness for him on the backbenchers, as you say. Exactly the same people who were uh, making Theresa May's misery, life and misery over Brexit, are now yeah. harrying Boris Johnson of a net zero. Okay, let's go back and see if um, Ed Miliband, uh, standing in for Keir Starmer uh, in the in PMQs, his PMQs unpacked where he pulls the action live in the House of Commons. Let's go back to question number three. Full commitments. I just correct the Prime Minister on one point. It was the second half of this century set out in Paris, not 2100 for net zero. But, but, but here's the problem, Prime Minister, on this question of net zero targets for the middle of the century. It's easy to make promises for 30 years' time. It's much more difficult to act now. Australia has recently announced a 2050 net zero target, but its 2030 target would head the world towards approximately four degrees of global warming. Can I urge him he mustn't shift the goalposts when it comes to Glasgow? It is about the emergency we face this decade. It's about the NDCs this decade. Please keep the focus on 2030, not 2050 and beyond. Yeah. Well, uh, the focus is, is certainly on, uh, on 2030. We have 122 uh, nationally determined contributions already. Uh, 17 out of 20 uh, G20 countries have made uh, NDCs. And, and the commitments are coming through. And he's right to say uh, that we need to keep the, the pressure up. What you can't do, Mr Speaker, is go in advance of what is truly practicable uh, for, for the world economy and for what, and for what people uh, can do. Uh, this government will go as fast as we, as we possibly can. Uh, but it, it was I mean, Labour's plans, which I think he 
he endorsed were condemned by the, the GMB union, for, 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 which they're, they're, they're paymasters, Mr Speaker. Uh, for, for, for meaning uh, that they'd be confiscating people's cars uh, by 2030, and, you, and families would be only allowed one aeroplane flight every five years, Mr. Speaker. <laughs> Is that right, Patrick? This is what the GMB have suggested. Well, it's interesting. I, I was actually going to point out before Boris Johnson uh, took the name of the GMB in vain that this is quite a fraught. Uh, the politics of this for Labour are quite fraught as well, because in 20... Uh, you know, it's interesting how Miliband is talking about 2030. At Labour's comments in 2019, there was a huge internal Barney over uh, a motion that the grassroots wanted to pass, saying net zero by 2035. And it was the unions who basically watered it down, uh, you know, changed all the language stripped out all the concrete commitments precisely because they were worried about the same things that Tory backbench worried about, i.e. Uh, jobs, traditional industries, uh, household budgets. So it's quite interesting to hear Boris Johnson cast the unions as, uh, you know, muesli-munching hippies when actually... The opposite has been the, the, op case the opposite has been the case with the Labour Party. Protecting sort of heavy industry has been a uh, priority. Right, question number four, Ed Miliband. Mr Speaker, let me tell him... What this summit needs is statesmanship, not partisanship, which we just heard from the Prime Minister. He should not be trying to score party political points on such an important issue facing our country and our world. Uh, and that, that's never the way I did PMQs. Uh, now, now, let me ask him, now let me, let me ask him about, about the crucial issue of climate finance for developing countries. Because the, 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 the reason that the Paris summit succeeded was there was a coalition of vulnerable countries and developed countries that put pressure on all the big emitters, including China, including India. But the problem is that the world has not delivered on the $100 billion of finance promised more than a decade ago in Copenhagen, that the plan is to deliver it maybe in 2023. But I want to ask him about his actions. I want to ask him about his actions. Hasn't it made it much harder to deliver on this promise that we are the only G7 country to cut the aid budget in the run-up to this crucial summit? Uh, Mr Speaker, I thought we weren't going to have any partisan points. <laughs> Didn't last long. Uh, actually, the first, the first thing I did, uh, as, one of the first things I did uh, as Prime Minister was to go out to uh, my first Unger as Prime Minister, as UN General Assembly as Prime Minister, and announce uh, a huge £11.6 billion commitment from the UK to helping the developed world to tackle climate change. And, 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 and I'm going to say to the right, right on the, yes, of course it's true, and, and we haven't cut that. We have not cut that, Mr Speaker. We're keeping that investment. We're keeping that investment. And, and let me tell the right honourable gentleman that this country is working flat out to ensure that we do reach the £100 billion commitment from the whole of the world. We're seeing the money come in from the United States, from the Italians, from the French, from, from the European Union, the, and it's quite right that it should. We have a way to go, Mr Speaker. Whether we'll get there or not, I cannot say. It's in the balance. But the challenge is there for the leaders of the developed world, and I quite agree with the right honourable gentleman, they need to rise to it. They both seem like they're enjoying this. Yeah, I was going to say, I dare say... Ed Miliband's Ed much better at this than, than when, he was, when it was actually his job, uh, potentially. Um, somebody's tweeted in on the most important uh, question of all. Charles says, what has Ed done to his hair? 
some serious growth and shampoo body. His hair is looking very big and quite grey. I, well, I think I think it suits him. It's dignified, isn't it? He looks he looks very much. I mean, this isn't going to surprise people, but he he looks increasingly like. Uh, Ralph Miliband, his dad. <laughs> Sorry, man looks like his own dad. Thank you for that, Patrick. That's it sounds we... more profound when you talk about Ralph Miliband, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for bringing us that um, that sort of high level um, uh, level of analysis. Um, the, 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 this is be, this, the, the thing that Ed Miliband's put his finger on, though, is an important one, and definitely is going to dominate some of COP next week. The, the decision to cut uh, the amount of money that Britain spends on foreign aid from 0.7 to 0.5 percent of national income does make it harder when it comes to twisting the arms of other countries. Yes, exactly. Um, especially when, so for instance, last week, um, the Times broke the news that Joe Biden was, understandably, if you put it in the context of that, you know, he it puts the UK in a, in a sort of invidious diplomatic position, right, because you have to go to, um, you know, basically the UK strategy to say to Joe Biden, right, developing countries are meant to... There's a shortfall in what developing countries are willing to spend. Can you... Can you sort of stick us a tenner um, in, in in billions? And um, yeah, understandably, if you're dealing with a UK that has dialed back its own international aid commitments, then that, that that's a diplomatic problem. Yeah, and when he says that um, developing countries have to step up, it's slightly harder for them to do that if we're taking away the money from them that we previously promised them. Anyway, uh, let's go. I think we're on uh, question number five now. Wait, Billabar. It's one thing for him not to know what is in the Paris Agreement, but it's another thing not to know what's in his own budget. He has cut the aid budget. Of course he's cut the aid. Of course he's cut the aid budget. He's abandoned the bipartisan belief in the aid budget across both of these houses. But it's not just on aid, Mr Speaker, where they face both ways. They've got a trade deal with Australia, where they've allowed them to drop their temperature commitments. They're telling others to power past coal while flirting with a new coal mine. And they're saying we've got to move beyond fossil fuels and opening the new Cambo oil field. Isn't the truth, isn't the truth, Mr Speaker, that the Prime Minister has undermined his own COP presidency by saying one thing and doing another? Prime Minister, no, Mr Speaker, what were, what were, and he's completely wrong. He's completely wrong in what he's, and I think he should, he should, I think he should withdraw what he's just said about, about the 11.6 billion, uh, because we remain absolutely committed to the 11.6 billion pounds that we're investing to tackle climate change around the world, and uh, and, and if he and that is that is absolutely rock solid, and and he talks about Australia, and I talked to the the Prime Minister of Australia only recently, and Australia has just with great difficulty made the commitment to get to net zero by 2050. It's a great thing, uh, and Mr. Speaker, the, I talked to I talked yesterday to our Indonesian friends, uh, for instance, the Joko Widodo, a good friend of this country, uh, who's agreed on coal uh, to bring forward the, uh, the abolition of coal use in Indonesia to 2040, Mr Speaker. A fantastic effort by the Indonesians. I talked to President Putin, uh, I think it was yesterday, uh, Mr Speaker, and he confirmed, he confirmed his determination to get to net zero uh, by the middle of the century. And that, that is what the UK is doing, working with countries around the world to get the outcome we want. It's still too early to say whether it will succeed, Mr Speaker, it's in the balance. We've had that, that. We've had that line a few times now. It's in the balance. I've just noticed Boris Johnson's wearing a sort of COP26 badge. It's quite fetching, I think. <laughs> I'm not so, totally sure if in the world of like reducing waste and you know single-use plastics and all that, never giving everyone a badge and a mascot is necessarily. I'll tell you, like that, Danny Finkelstein has a very big collection of political badges. Does he? He does. I mean, I don't want to. I mean, this, these things are all relative, but that might be the most interesting thing I've heard in this <laughs> half hour. Uh, I think let's go back. We'll have the last question from uh, Ed Miliband. 
The thing the Prime Minister has underestimated throughout these last two years is COP26 is not a glorified photo opportunity. It is a fragile and complex negotiation. And, and the problem is, boost, boosterism, boot, the Prime Minister's boosterism won't cut carbon emissions in half. Photo opportunities won't cut carbon emissions in half. Can I just say to the Prime Minister, in these, in these final days before COP26, we need more than warm words. Above all, Glasgow has got to be a summit of climate delivery, not climate delay. He talks about cutting CO2 in half. Well, that's virtually what this country, this government has done, uh, Mr Speaker. Since 1990, we've cut CO2 by 44%. Uh, and, and the economy has grown by 78%. And that's our approach, Mr. Speaker. A sensible, pragmatic, conservative approach that cuts CO2, that tackles climate change, and that delivers high wage, high skilled jobs across this country. And our, our net zero plan, Mr. Speaker, will deliver 440,000 jobs. That's what the people in this country want to, want to see. And that's what they're seeing. They're seeing wages up, they're seeing growth up, they're seeing productivity up under this government. And if, we, and if we left it to the, to the right honourable gentleman, the Leader of the Opposition, who is sadly not in his place, uh, we would still be in lockdown. But it's a point that he might, he might bring to his attention uh, wherever he is currently self-isolated. Oh, we, we, we end with one of the, the greatest hits. Yeah, I, I thought we'd get, we were going to uh, endure an entire session of BMQs without a jibe, one of the classic toolkit of jibes <laughs> against Keir Starmer, but even though he's not in the room... Boris Johnson has managed if it was to up to him, we'd still be in uh, I mean, interesting. I mean, um, Ed Miliband was on uh, his sort of home turf. He knows about this stuff. Former Energy and Climate Change Secretary. Uh, shadow business is, you know, shadowing much of what the um, the government is now doing on this. And he's he's the shadow Alex Sharma as well. The shadow Alex Sharma. If that's not a job title that anybody wants, I don't know uh, what is. Um, uh, but actually, he's done quite a good job of just putting up in lights again that it's quite a big deal, cop. Yeah, he has. And also, it's that accusation he made in his penultimate question, delivery um, you know, delivery versus the government's uh, actual actions on the environment, right? In the week where Tory MPs' inboxes have been full of people complaining about sewage in rivers, it's a really... Da- that accusation of double standards is really damaging for, uh, for Tory MPs in particular. And it's one they're acutely aware of. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. We bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 